Before we start, a quick word about Ram Windows, a brand partner we use in just about every home we build. These are sleek, energy-efficient, long-standing aluminum windows that I think are the best value out there, period. That's why we use them. These windows are nice enough to put in the 3 to $5 million homes we build, but they're also priced so that a range of budgets can afford them. And beyond the windows, one of my favorite things about the company, they are proudly made right here in the great state of Texas. And y'all know how we do things around here. Not that I'm biased or anything. If you happen to be in the Lone Star State, come visit, check them out for yourself in either their Houston, Dallas, or Austin showroom. You can also check them out online, ramwindows.com. That's R-A-M windows.com. They can ship just about anywhere also. Tell them I sent you. This episode is brought to you by Lowe's and their Lowe's for Pros program. I've been a customer of Lowe's for years, and I've also been a big fan of theirs given what they're doing to help contractors within our industry, something that, as you all know, aligns with my mission. Now, this Lowe's for Pros program is absolutely something worth checking out. My company's enrolled in it. We love it. It gives us access to things like quick ordering, bulk savings, special deals, spending tracking, financing solutions. The list goes on. Check out the link in the show notes. Or you can search Lowe's for Pros to learn more about these programs, perks, and incentives that Lowe's is offering to help builders and contractors like you and me. Today we are talking to Brian Potter about the role of innovation in construction and more specifically, why do we innovate on an incremental basis whereas many industries are so exponential? Well, Brian has a really interesting thesis on that. We cover it. We also cover some other more concrete, practical ideas around uh, innovation and where our industry may be headed. Brian is the author, you guys may know his blog, Construction Physics. You can find it at constructionphysics.substack.com. He also is a senior fellow at the Institute for Progress. Previously, Brian led an engineering team at Katera. He is a structural engineer by trade. You all may know Katera for the very public ascent, followed by a very rapid public failure. We talk about that a little as well. It's a really interesting episode. I enjoyed it. I think you guys will as well. Brian, first, thanks for coming on the show. It's an honor to have you, and uh, I'm excited to talk to you because you've got a little different angle than many of our guests, and that is you write about construction and have a, a real depth of expertise from the articles I've read about, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's like uh, kind of a little bit of an economic perspective, a little bit of uh, kind of a macro perspective, and talk about things ranging from uh, innovation to uh, stats across the world and, and how things uh, look from kind of global perspective. So anyway, what I would be curious to hear is how do you describe exactly what it is you do and write about right now? 
Sure. Yeah, just a, a real brief background on me. I'm a structural engineer uh, by training. Uh, I've worked in the industry for about 15 years and I'm kind of different sides of it as a for a subcontractor and then for a sort of uh, just a consulting engineering firms and then some sort of more vertically integrated companies as well. So kind of saw all sides of it. And like most people kind of who spend a decent amount of time in the industry, eventually you start thinking, gosh, there's so many different ways we could improve the industry. Things seem so efficient in these various ways. Why can't anybody seem to manage to change it? Um, and then I got the opportunity to join a really huge construction startup uh, that you may be familiar with called Katera that was saying how they were, they saw those problems too, and they were going to solve all those problems. And they had raised a massive pile of funding to go and do that. And so I joined them uh, in 2019 as I was to sort of build and manage an engineering group in the Atlanta office. And kind of everybody knows that there's a story of Katera at this point. They ended up not being able to do it. They, uh, they ended in a huge, massive bankruptcy despite all the, all the venture capital funding they raised. Um, and part of that was certainly just various operational stumbles like any company will have. But part of it is just their sort of fundamental business model, which was we're going to build buildings and factories like we build everything else. And we're going to make things much more efficient than the current industry can do it, which sounds very compelling on its surface. It turns out it's a lot harder to do that than it's you might think that it would be and that many, many, many people have tried the same basic idea for basically a hundred years and have not managed to crack it in the sense that they're able to dramatically reduce construction costs, right? Like you can certainly build a very solid business doing prefabricated building, right? But you can't, you, what you cannot do is lower your costs of construction by like 80% or something. Like maybe if you, you know, like Henry Ford did for the car, uh, it, you don't, that's not, that's not what you get. And so I kind of, started thinking, well, gosh, this seems like a really hard problem. So many people have tried to solve it and try to wait different ways to make the industry more efficient. And it doesn't seem to quite stick. What is it about this industry that makes this such a hard problem to solve? And so I kind of just started writing down my thoughts and just kind of kind of picking apart the problem as to how the industry fits together in such a way that it makes it sort of resistant to various ways of improving it that seems like they should work. And the kind of newsletter basically came out of those efforts. I came to your blog through an article, and I wish I remember how it got linked, but uh, it was a fascinating article that you wrote on why it's hard to innovate in construction. It rang so true to me. And uh, I hope our listeners will read it as well. I'll link to it in the, uh, in the show notes. But can you give us that 30,000 foot overview about why there isn't more innovation in the industry? And it sounds like you've probably seen it firsthand with your experience in Katera. I imagine we've got some dovetailing elements that, uh, that are in play here. Sure. So the, the basic model is, is pretty simple. And, and like you say, it's, it's one that most people who have worked in the industry will, will be fairly familiar with it, is that there is kind of a, a very asymmetric risk reward uh, payoff in construction where basically or, or for a building project where a project that goes, if it goes really well, you know, maybe you are 10 percent, 15 percent under budget, right? But if it goes really badly, maybe you are 100 or 200 or 
over budget, right? So the, 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 the worst possible outcome is much, much worse than the best possible, out, or best possible outcome is better than the average. And, and so what that does is that that naturally makes you a little bit more conservative for anything that's, that's, that's new or is likely to disrupt your, your existing process. That is the, 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 the potential upside is relatively small, but the potential downside is very, very, very large. And so what you get is you get people who want to say, okay, well, I'll try your new thing, but I really need to kind of see it work first or, you know, come back when, when you can kind of demonstrate uh, that you've used it in a bunch of other buildings. Um, you know, people just very naturally are, are reluctant to try new things for basically perfectly rational reasons that the potential downside from something new that people don't know, necessarily know how it works. They don't necessarily know how it interacts with all the different trades. That downside is much, much more salient and higher than the potential upside where, you know, maybe some small process you've saved 10% of your cost or you can cut a few days out of it. It's a relatively small benefit compared to how bad things could be if it really, you know, doesn't work right. Interesting that you say that because I've got a flashback that's coming to me from maybe five, six, seven years ago. I remember some group walked into our office and they were selling uh, just metal studs, metal framing. And they were talking about all the benefits of metal framing, you know, these very lightweight studs, but straighter walls. They were even saying that it was cheaper. Uh, I can't remember exactly whether it was cheaper labor or cheap, whatever, but they were uh, hypothesizing that the total all-in to frame with, with this metal uh, that they were selling was cheaper. And it sounded interesting, but our team started meeting on it. And there were several things that happened. One was exactly what you said. It's like, well, obviously two by four framing, two by six framing works for us right now. So what are we really trying to solve? Um, yeah, it sounds like maybe it could be kind of an interesting selling point. It could maybe save us a little bit of money, but oh my God, what happens if we're missing something and it goes wrong? So we were landing on that exact point that you're making about the asymmetric risk return. And that was one of the largest things that pushed us away from it. And I think that's probably what we told the group. We said, look, you know, uh, we know you guys are just starting up. Go get a bunch of builder clients around uh, around Central Texas, and once you've got a bunch of homes and happy clients, come come back, and we would love to talk to you again. So that was how we settled on it. I will share with you one other really interesting thing, and I don't know how this factors into your analysis, but we started calling some of our trades because we thought, what hidden costs are there? So we'll call our plumber, you know, the MEP contractors, and we'll talk to them about how this would affect their cost if we were to use this. And every one of them said, oh yeah, you know, my bid will probably be 20%, 30% higher, whatever. And the interesting thing is it probably, you know, why, why, I don't know why our electric, why our electrician would need to charge 30% more if we're framing uh, with, with metal studs versus wood. Ultimately what it probably comes down to is also asymmetric incentives uh, insofar as what do they, they've got no reason to need to, you know, they don't have experience with this type of product right now. So they're probably just adding that on for whatever sort of pain in the ass they feel like it's going to be to learn it or any sort of additional risk that they may ensure that may not be well-defined. Uh, and so they just 
add their cost because they've got no, they don't need to uh, figure it out for us. They're not, you know, that's not part of their process that's in any way imperative to their work, if that makes sense. So um, in other words, you've got different pieces of the puzzle that aren't aligned and also trying to everyone hold hands and march forward with uh, some new innovative solution. Um, does that make sense? Do you yeah. see, do you I, see I, that? Also? Yeah, I think that really fits into it. It's, it's so interesting that you say metal studs what the electrician was complaining about it because you know theoretically metal studs should be easier for the electrician right because they have the little punch outs they don't need to be drilling through studs they can just um string their wires without having to do that but it again when you change the process it impacts a whole bunch of other things and it's not necessarily obvious what is going to make it more more difficult until you get in the field and try to build with it right and then it becomes more obvious um yeah, and that thing that you, yeah, what you talked about where they have to spend time to, to learn this system, uh, yeah, that's that's a really big problem. And in some ways it's it's very pernicious. Um, I, I, mean, I come from the engineering world, obviously, and that is a huge thing kind of that, um, that uh, you, you have to deal with on, on that side of it, where you maybe have, if you have some new system that comes along, you know, you maybe have to develop a whole bunch of new design details and figure out how it's going to work with various things and figure out how it can resist lateral load and how you tie your various elements to it and things like that. And you're not necessarily, the fee that you're getting is not necessarily reflective of that, right? So you may be fairly reluctant to bid something that is new or weird, or you may be kind of want to push back if somebody, somebody suggests it. I, I, I talked about that a little bit in the article, I call it reverse moral hazard, where you are getting all the drawbacks of some new system, but you are not getting any of the benefits of it. And so you are incentivized to resist it. Yeah, I see that in a lot of different areas of what we do. That's a good term we all need to commit to, <laughs> to memory, <laughs> reverse moral hazard. I like it we end up in this situation where now we're just kind of, we are innovating in the industry. And I know you posit the same, we're innovating, we're just innovating incrementally as opposed to exponentially, uh, like so many other industries. We do have some players like Katera that try and end up being, uh, unfortunately, a very you know public failure you have kind of the inside view of that. Can we talk about Katera for a second? I mean, yeah, what, we can, we can talk a little the, bit about it. Yeah. A, I, I don't want to put you in a situation where if you've got any sort of NDAs or, or anything like that, but what, from a public perspective, I mean, what happened there? My understanding was that it was just hard to, um, it was hard to make it happen because you have all these disparate municipal codes and different kind of, regulations across different jurisdictions and that ended up becoming very very burdensome um i have no idea whether that's accurate or whether that's the full story about what what was kind of the underlying cause can you talk to that at all sure and this isn't something else I, i've written actually an article on so if, if you want to look to that as well i've, I've I, I wrote a fairly uh, detailed write-up of, of kind of my experiences uh at the company um the so from my perspective and the very basic problem that the, the company ended up having was that they kind of went in on a, on a business model that was very hard to pivot away from kind of the sort of fundamental logic 
in a startup is that you kind of, uh, you, you come up with an idea and then you go out and try to sell it in the marketplace. And inevitably your idea is not quite right. It needs to be tweaked. The customers, they don't want A, they want B, something like that. And then you kind of iterate your idea over time until you find what's called product market fit, which is you have something that they, that is the, um, you know, people really, really want to buy. And then once you have that, you can scale up your company and, you know, make millions of dollars and, and so on and so forth. Um, the problem, so Katera never really managed to find product market fit. They never quite, they had kind of these ideas for how to build buildings more efficiently. They never quite were able to get to the point where they had like a product, like a building product, which is what they spent a lot of their time developing that they, um, people were really, really interested in buying. And they kind of scaled up the company before they were able to do that. And part of the problem is that, you know, the, the sort of standard, standard startup logic works in a software company where all you have is kind of lines of code. And if you wanted to delete some and, and write some new ones, you can kind of do that. If you are a company building physical things in the real world and your idea involves building, you know, a hundred million dollar factory, it's very hard to pivot away from that, right? If you, if it turns out people don't want A and don't want B, like, well, I have this hundred million dollar factory I built because I thought people wanted A and what am I supposed to do with it now? So it's much more complicated. And, you know, there's a reason that there, this, this sort of effort is littered, is like a graveyard littered with the corpses of other people that have sort of tried and, and, and failed to do it. Which is so sad because theoretically there's so much area for disruption in what we do. But I think theoretically is the operative word. So we see all these prefab companies that seem to be failing here in the States. And we just need, we need somebody to figure it out because there's a huge need for it. So I was talking to a guy recently who was saying that um, in Europe, the prefab economy is much more established and much more successful. Have you ever heard anything about that? Yeah, I, I've looked into this a, a little bit. Yeah, in places like Germany and places like Sweden, um, they will do a lot of uh, prefab. And a lot of these factories are very, very advanced, like, you know, very highly roboticized. In the US, these are, we tend to have much lower level of like automation in, in prefab. You, you know, a lot of prefab factories they tend to be sort of, in some ways, it looks like a normal job site, right? You're just doing it in a warehouse and then you put your module on a, on a truck and, and deliver it to the job site. But the basic process isn't really that different than conventional construction. And yeah, a lot of, and, and, and there are companies that, that are doing it differently. Um, Autoval is a, is a big one that they have a giant robotic, pretty interesting robotic factory um, in Utah uh, that they're doing. And there's, there's other ones, um, Plant Prefab is another one. Um, but um, yeah, in, in Europe, it's, it's, it's pretty common to have a, yeah, just a, a, a higher level of prefab market penetration, just kind of in general. And then the factories that do exist, they're often fairly automated, um, you know, fairly what seems, you know, quite futuristic. Um, I will say that that doesn't necessarily cash out to lower construction costs. Really? Yeah. So what is the incentive to use it? I think more speed. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's kind of a, it, I would say lower construction costs in the sense that they don't necessarily build things less expensively there than we do 
in the U.S. And I mean, you know, I'm not an expert on this. There's a there's a lot of reasons for that. Thin, you know, labor is perhaps more expensive over there than it is over here. Over here, um, there's the, the codes are perhaps more strict or a different level of stringency. You know, transportation is kind of a big one over here that makes shipping prefabrication prefabricated things long distances very difficult. Europe is more dense overall. So there's a lot of interacting things. Um, but in general, yeah, you don't see a necessarily a huge, from, from what I understand, you don't necessarily see a huge difference in, in cost. Interesting. But of course, I guess if there is some speed to be had, there's some benefit on that front, in my opinion. Sure. Speed um, and, and, and quality and, and things like that. Um, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that, as you say, there's some structural components, such as just their infrastructure that might set them up for more success than what we've got here in the States. Now, are there any prefab companies that uh, are starting right now? I think you referenced one, Autoball or something like that. Are there any that are starting that you are uh, excited to see and think that they may have um, cracked the code at all? So, yeah, there's a few. Um, Autoval is one, A-U-T-O-V-O-L is one. They're kind of interesting. They're, they're, they have a factory in Utah, a very highly automated factory. Um, lots of robotics, stuff like that. They're an affordable housing builder, as, as far as I know. Um, but what's interesting is, is they seem to ship their, their modules like really far away. They ship them to like Cal, you know, the Bay Area and places like that. And because that's, from what I understand, it's because the construction costs are so high there that it is, you know, they can build it in Utah and ship it a, a few hundred miles and build it in the Bay Area and still end up being much more competitive than like a local builder just because even, even with that, all those added transportation costs, they are still dramatically cheaper. I think they say they can build like $100 per square foot less than, than what would be comparable, which is, which is crazy, right, for residential construction. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I wrote an article about them a while ago, and I kind of speculate that, you know, the, the tricky part with prefab is always, can you get enough volume running through your plant? Uh, to, to sort of amortize your fixed costs over, right? And, and so I kind of speculate that, well, maybe this is sort of a model for them to be able to, to, to do that, where they start out shipping very far in for, to these really, really high cost jurisdictions. And as they are gradually able to, as they're able to build there, they're gradually able to ramp up their production volume. The more volume they get, the cheaper that they can build, which makes them more competitive in more jurisdictions, which lets them ship even more places, which raises their volume even more. So you can kind of force, you can see the potential of like a virtuous cycle there where they just yeah. are able, able to ship more and more volume. They're able to bring their costs lower and lower. So I, I'm kind of interested to see what happens with, with them. I'm, I'm a little bit optimistic. Another sort of general trend that is pretty popular that you see now is there's a whole lot of startups that are basically building what's called ADUs, which is something dwelling unit. Uh, accessory dwelling unit. Accessory yeah. dwelling unit. That's right. Which is like a, you know, it's like a granny flat, right? You put it in your backyard. It's like a one bedroom separate living area. And there's a lot of jurisdictions that are allowing these to be permitted with relatively, relatively easily, right? You can just go and drop it off a truck or whatever, 
and, and put it on your site and then you can rent it out or have a family member stay there or, or whatever. And there's quite a few startups that are pursuing that. And a lot of them are very specifically pursuing that as, as kind of a similar business model in the sense that this is a wedge that we're going to use to work out our product and get some production volume and then gradually expand out to other markets using the same basic technology. So there, there's quite a few of these guys that are actually have some pretty interesting ways of, of building these things. Um, there's a 3D printed one that's, uh, oh gosh, it totally escapes me. I can't remember it off the top of my head, but there's a, a uh, 3D uh, printed one that uses, it, it doesn't even use concrete. It uses this sort of polymer material for at least part of their assembly. So- Is that from Icon? It's, it's not Icon, it's um, okay. Mighty Buildings. That's what it is. I was gonna grab myself nuts if I could pick it up. Mighty Buildings. So their one, uh, there's the there's Boxable, which has also an ADU, but it's like a folding ADU. So it like folds up into a relatively small package and then to make transportation easier and then unfolds into a- Oh, cool. A, a full-sized unit. Um, there is Cover, which is- they just raised a, a huge round of, of venture capital funding. And, and they're sort of, a, they're kind of a, a quote unquote more traditional panelized system, but they're really going for a true like kit of parts where you can just mix and match and swap out their, these very regular units into cut in, in by units. I mean like individual wall panels, individual floor panels, things like that into kind of making differently shaped uh, structures. Uh, and the idea is that they would just, you know, make mass produce these, these individual blocks and be able to combine them in different ways and eventually scale that up to things beyond ADU. So there's a lot of kind of, th- 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 there's a lot of people pursuing ideas for how to change the, change the housing industry in particular and starting and using ADUs as a, as the starting point. So uh, that's another area I, th- I'm, uh, I think uh, I'm kind of keeping an eye on. How about any other areas of exciting innovation or growth in the industry? Anything else you've sure? Got well, your eye on? yeah, it's it's very hard to deny the enthusiasm around like concrete three D printing, right? Uh, there's just so many companies that are investigating this. There's so many you know housing units popping up that are kind of using this system. I am less sure about it, kind of where it sits right now. I think there's kind you know there's undoubtedly drawbacks to, to using a system right like this, right? It's concrete. It's, it's very, very concrete intensive. And so it's maybe not the most carbon friendly thing you have to figure out in some ways makes adds a lot of complexity that maybe more than compensates for the, for the benefits that you get. The, the sort of resolution maybe isn't what you wish that it would be. And so there's very visible like seam lines and stuff on your walls that you print. So it's, it's very early stages for the technology. And so in some ways it's, it doesn't matter where it is right now. What matters is how fast that it improves. So I'm curious, I'm just, that's kind of what I'm keeping an eye on. It's like, how, what does it look, how much better does this tech is this technology get in and how much faster is it, is it happening? So that's something else I kind of am keeping an eye on. And then I guess the other thing would be just, just construction robotics, just in general, which arguably 3d printing is just sort of a a subset of that. Robots have kind of traditionally been more used in a sort of fixed manufacturing environment, like, like for cars. And it'll be kind of interesting that there's, they're very slowly kind of making their way into the sort of job. things like computer vision and things like that. They're maybe 
the technology is slowly getting to the point where they are they can be more useful on the job site. So that's kind of something else I'm keeping an eye on as well. My issue with 3D printing, and we've got here locally in Austin, I think one of the pioneers in that industry, which with Icon. Yeah, Icon. And, I mean, hats off to them for what they're doing because they're true disruptors and I want them to succeed. My pessimistic view, and I would welcome you to better inform me on this and the shortcoming of, of what I'm saying, but I've been out there, I've seen their product and yeah, it's it's like you described, you know, and they're printing these walls, but that's kind of the issue I've got with it is like, all right, so they're printing right now these walls and I guess it's early technology. You got to start somewhere, but the walls are the easiest fastest part of the house to, to frame up and so what i have always said somewhat flippantly and again i should probably educate myself better before i i say these things but like uh i mean go go 3d print me a, a plumbing rough and, and a foundation <laughs> and like now we're now we're talking now we're on to something so how do you feel about that is it just is the idea to just say well slow down like this is we're just in the nation infant stages of this and it'll catch up to that one day or i mean how do we look at that yeah i think that is the big unanswered question is can this technology make the jump from just doing the structure like you say just doing the concrete wall to something even even beyond the concrete wall right can you print the rest of the of the structure of the building and then you, and then can you extend from that to beyond just extruding concrete can you do plumbing can you do electrical can you do the other 85% of the building i i i'm not i i'm not you know in i don't have the inside view on enough of these companies to know if they what their path to that looks like i think that is the various obvious question is whether the technology can be extended to that or if they're going to hit some sort of wall when they try to move from walls to the rest of the building. I think it's unclear at this point, but I'm sure they're, they're working on that. Yeah. What are some of the other areas in our industry that you think should be disrupted that maybe aren't getting the attention right now that they deserve? Ah, good question. I think there's a lot of stuff that is getting attention. It's just kind of moving very slowly, more slowly than you might like. Um, there's, there's a lot, I think there's a lot of possibility in just um, job site information and being able to sort of manipulate and share that information in a way that is more useful. The kind of, the main way that, that jobs, that information propagates on a construction project, and it's been this way for, you know, 100 years or, or whatever, is just through a set of drawings, right, a set of 2D documents where the engineer and the architects create it, and then that flows to the contractor, and then that flows to the worker, and they have to sort of take that information and then measure it out. And then there's very, and it's, it's kind of a very relatively inefficient information flow, and it's, there's not like a good way to get information that feeds back to the, you know, from what gets built to the architect, to the engineer, to the rest of those people so they can understand how the building is going so to see if they can kind of improve their process. So you kind of have this broken information loop that I think people, I think there's kind of the, the, you're slowly seeing the technology emerge that will be able to kind of close that loop in a way with things like just 
cameras and, and drones, uh, the computer vision, things like that, that are, um, there's there are companies that are doing like, you know, the point scan, point, uh, point cloud and point scanning stuff. Uh, the technology to kind of take, take the information that on a job site for stuff that gets built, loop it back in so you can kind of, so you can kind of understand what is actually happening with your building as it gets built and then kind of after it gets built. I think once that sort of is complete and it's much easier to sort of have something that gets built and understand and then get back information as to exactly what it is and how it is sort of changing, I think there's going to be a lot of interesting possibilities that get unlocked from, from that. So it'll be, I think kind of, it'll be interesting to see kind of how this sort of collection of technologies um, kind of converge. You hit on something that me and my director of construction talk about a lot, which is we have all these job site cameras on the exterior of our sites, but we're thinking now about actually putting these inside and these cameras, these particular models have little two-way radios attached to them. Mm. And the interesting thing is if we could have communication inside each of our homes we're building plus visuals in there, several problems would be solved that are so unnecessary when you think about it. I mean, so part of it is the guys that are actually installing the tile on a home, you know, and, and are the ones that are actually following to get really granular with you here that are following, you know, some sort of deciding what sort of pattern, or they mm. think they know what sort of pattern, but now granted you should have that information via your um, purchase order and your scope of work. You should have all that information, but uh, like what you and I were talking about before the interview, oftentimes it's, you know, so the guys that are setting the tile, maybe the subcontractors of your subcontractor of that subcontractor, I mean, you can be two or three layers removed. So, the opportunity for miscommunication is very big in this business. And you don't ever have the phone numbers or know the name oftentimes of the guy that's coming in to, to install that tile, uh, at least in my part of the world, you don't. So to be able to uh, have some sort of like on-site communication and visuals where you can uh, get in touch with particular person that installer or he can get in touch with the superintendent to ask questions uh, that's such a basic in like information flow such a basic thing solution but no one really has it <laughs> you know no one really does that at least not in you know single family homes in uh in texas so just small little things like that could end up making uh it a much more efficient process to build a home in my market. Yeah, for sure. I think one thing, one technology that I think almost everybody that sees it is, is just waiting for it to just totally change the construction industry, which is, which is AR, right? Once you have a, a set of glasses that can project in, in front of you exactly what needs to go where in the building, a lot of those information problems and those quality control problems, all sorts of things just get solved, right? If you can show exactly where it is where every little piece needs to go. You don't have to measure it out using the tape measure. You don't have to look at, you know, looking back and forth between the drawings and the site. It, it's just all right there in front of you. And it, it, this technology seems like it's tantalizingly close, right? You see all these little, these, uh, these sort of product demonstrations. It seems like it's just getting better and better. It just seems like it's a matter of time until that totally just changes how things 
done. And of course, once that comes along, it's going to need to change everything around it, right? You're not going to be able to just do a set of CAD drawings anymore. Everything is going to have to be much closer to the BIM world where you have actual drawing information that can just translate these digital objects into something that projects in front of you that the worker who's wearing these AR glasses can see. So I think that's, I think that's, I would be very surprised if we don't see that just totally change the industry once it, once it, once it, it gets to, once it gets to fully developed. Oh yeah. That'll be revolutionary. And I had, um, honestly never really thought about the impact that that'll have the, the VR on construction in terms of, uh, being able to see the homes as they're coming up. I'm also about 10 steps behind always when it comes to tech. So, <laughs> um, that'll be pretty cool. Well, Brian, I don't want to languish on what's been a really, uh, a really good conversation. Tell us, um, where we can find you. We'll link uh, to your blog in the, uh, in the show notes so that people can go and read and subscribe, hopefully. But uh, tell us where we can find you if, uh, if we want to connect. Sure. So I have a Substack. It's at constructionphysics.substack.com. And it comes out once a week-ish. And I am a subscriber to that and I can testify that it's good stuff good content you're producing. So keep that up, man. You're helping push the industry forward with your thinking. So much appreciated. Thank you very much. 